One of the real blessings of our summer series is the opportunity it gives us to meet speakers, oftentimes for the first time here at Colonial. They come, and after they've preached, once they become lifelong, well, eternal long friends then with each of us here at Colonial. Today we have such an opportunity. Dr. Doug McLaughlin is our speaker both this morning and this evening. It's a delight to have him with us. For many of you, this may be the first time you'll hear him preaching the Word of God. You will always remember what he will preach. Dr. McLaughlin was born and raised in the state of Michigan, went on to college in Chicago, and then after college went on for another degree in Minnesota, graduated from college in Minnesota, and then went on to a seminary there, Central Baptist Theological Seminary, where he completed his training and stayed on and pastored in the state for several years. God called him back to Michigan where he pastored. And then for two decades he was brought back to Minnesota where he pastored a significant impacting ministry, church known as Fourth Baptist Church in Minneapolis that also had a seminary, a Central Baptist Theological Seminary. And through that seminary, numerous lives were touched, impacted. Some of our own staff here at our seminary and our ABF teachers, Drs. Pettigrew and Bookman, worked in that ministry, taught there as well, and sat under the pastoral ministry of Dr. McLaughlin. And it's through contacts that many of us have had with his ministry that he was recommended to come here and be one of our summer speakers. When you listen to Dr. McLaughlin preach and handle the Word of God, you will sit under someone who has an, a unique and interesting ability given by God, a gift to handle the Greek New Testament and make it come alive in the English for us. And, and he will, uh, as an expository preacher, just make Romans 12 come alive to us today. In the communique is an outline of that message. He and his wife Marie have three grown children, seven grandchildren. He now has a ministry traveling across the country, preaching and teaching in conferences, and he is now living in Florida but teaching also half the year in Wisconsin, Northland International University in the Bible Department, Pastoral Theology Department there. I'm going to ask Dr. McLaughlin to come to the pulpit for just a moment. It's in this service that his wife, Marie, was able to join us. She was in one of the ABFs earlier. But as Dr. McLaughlin comes, Marie, I think you are seated somewhere back here. Can you stand for just a moment, please? This is his wife, Marie, and this is Dr. McLaughlin. Let's welcome them today. Amen, brother. Thank you. It's been a great privilege for Marie and me to be here. Thank you to Pastor Stephen Davey and to Dr. Burgraff and Dr. Pettigrew and Dr. Bookman and others who have been taking very good care of us and uh, had the privilege of hearing your pastor speak at Maranatha Baptist Church in Sebring, Florida, where we spent several months in the winter, and our hearts were warmed by the rich ministry of the Word out of the book of Job. And it's just a real honor for us uh, to be here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege. My title this morning is Total Commitment. And um, my text is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there, although I know we're all intimately acquainted with the sum and substance of, of, of that text. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that, everything kind of percolates down to that little word, that. In order that, all these spiritual antecedents are so that you may prove, that is by testing, discern, and then do the will of God, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I wonder if we might have just a word of prayer together for a moment. Thank you once again, Father, for the privilege of standing in this pulpit, the joy of ministering to this body of believers. Thank you for this good church and all the evidence that sits here before us and has in the previous two services of the rich blessing that you bestowed upon this body of believers. Now, Father, I ask you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit out of this glorious text of Scripture. Each time I come to a pulpit, I have to put myself in your hands for physical strength and stamina and mental clarity and the very rich sense of your presence. And so, Father, I want to ask that the precious Holy Spirit who first spoke this word to the heart and mind and soul and through the pen of the Apostle Paul, the same eternal spirit who first spoke it, I pray that he might speak it afresh and anew to our hearts in these moments together. The message of the text is flawless. The messenger who conveys it is flawed. So we ask for that special aid from your spirit so that you get glory to your name and so that you stretch and grow your people. We trust you for these rich blessings, Father. I ask you for them from my heart in the name and through the mighty blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Total commitment, which is what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, is all about. <clears throat> in 1964, when I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, I was privileged to represent the men of my class by preaching at graduation. I mentioned earlier that um, Marie and I went back for the 40th anniversary of our graduation in 2004, and when we walked into the room, I said, Marie, we're in the, we're in the wrong place. These are all old people. <laughs> but we, we belonged there. I came to Moody, the son of a bartender. My father tended three bars in a little town of Montrose, Michigan, just outside of Flint, Michigan. Heavy drinker. Lots of challenges in homes like that, as perhaps many of you know. I came to Moody, the son of a bartender, and the grandson of a gangster. My grandfather was a gangster in Detroit, Michigan, where he was shot and murdered. I came out of those dysfunctional environs, uh, abysmally ignorant of Scripture, to Moody Bible Institute. I hardly knew there was an Old and New Testament. I mentioned in the second session this morning that if somebody would have mentioned Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi to me, I might have thought that they were exotic diseases. I had no idea who they were. I didn't realize they were powerful prophetic voices speaking truth into the heart and soul of the Israelis and still speaking truth to us today in our 21st century world. I was surrounded there by great ones in those days and probably still today. A lot of people, a lot of famous Christians send their children to, to Moody and I was always hunkering down in the back seat hoping no teacher would ever ask me a question because I had no answers. I left Moody back in 1964 having a great deal more to learn to be sure and I still do. But I did leave with a love for God's word and a passion for Christian ministry and mission. And that's what I was talking about on graduation day in 1964. My title then in Torrey Gray Auditorium was Total Commitment. And I tried to describe a kind of commitment 
that would shape the lives of graduating seniors in three specific directions. Total commitment to the Savior, which is spiritual vitality. And total commitment to the Scriptures, which is doctrinal integrity. And total commitment to the sacrificial spread of the gospel, which is missional urgency. These commitments, which I tried to articulate on graduation day in 1964, these commitments have been the consuming passion and rudder-setting principles of my Christian life ever since that day. I do not mean to imply that I have achieved them in any ultimate sense. I know that I have not. But I can say with integrity that I have always and energetically aspired to them. And I still do. And I hope that I always will. I'm 68 years old now. I often say when I say that, I'm 68 years old and I'm a little ticked about it. (laughs) There's not much I can do about it. But whatever is left to me, I still aspire to these objectives. Total commitment is Paul's subject material. This is kind of in your notes there if you're interested in that kind of thing. Total commitment is Paul's subject material in this text. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is one of those benchmark passages. We all know it. That unpacks for us the radical implications of what it really means to be a Christian. Unfortunately, what it really means to be a Christian. Many Christians inside the body of Christ across the North American continent are not really interested in being. In some settings today, the message of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is unwelcome inside the body of Christ. And the reason is that this text will not let us off the hook. This text will not allow us to succumb to apathy, surrender to lethargy, indulge in hypocrisy, or relax into atrophy, spiritual atrophy. On the contrary, it calls us to the highest levels of dedication and devotion to God and his work in our postmodern, which means anti-truth, anti-Christ, anti-God world, the highest levels of dedication and devotion to God in that kind of world. Paul was never into bargain basement discipleship. He was always into high-level, deep-seated, Christ-like, cross-shaped Commitment and devotion to the work of the Lord. And that is my call, first to myself, because I need to renew these kinds of commitments on a regular basis in my own spiritual journey. That is my call, first to myself, and then to each one of you today. So what does this look like, total commitment? I think Paul will help us to see a little bit of what it looks like in these two verses. Very simple outline of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul defines for us what I call three key components of total commitment. The ground of total commitment the shape of it, a couple of items there, and the focus of it. And first, the ground of total commitment is the mercies of God. I mean, Paul is defining for us, when he uses that expression, the mercies of God, he's defining for us the moral justification for total commitment. In other words, what, what could possibly motivate someone to make the kind of commitment Paul is calling for here the presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice. What engine is powerful enough to drive that kind of sacrifice? Self-sacrifice goes against everything we have been taught in recent years about self-esteem, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-actualization. It contradicts the brute narcissism The terrible infatuation with the self 
that all of us wrestle with and which is endemic to our fallen nature. It will take an extraordinary motivation to move us outside our comfort zone to move us to make such a radical sacrifice. Paul tells us what it is. It's right there in the beginning of that verse. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by, it's a little word, dia, little preposition by, which I think means in this context because of or on account of. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by or on account of or because of the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul's word, therefore, connects Romans 12 with everything the apostles already said in his letter up to this point, Romans 1 to 11. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has laid out the whole theology of God's rescue operation, the wonder of the gospel. All that theology is there, analysis and argument leading to verses 33 to 36 of of Romans 11, which is adoration, and then the fleshing out of that ethic in chapters 12 to 16, beginning with verses, verses 1 and 2. Every stage of it is a manifestation of God's Mercy. I've always celebrated God's rescue operation. God rescued me when I was a 16-year-old boy. I came to personal faith in Christ through the witness of a number of teenagers in my public high school back in the dark ages in the late, ni- in the late 1950s. And these were genuine Christians, authentic Christian young people. There was no plasticity. They weren't plastic. They were real. There was no hypocrisy. They weren't hiding behind masks. What you see is what you got. They were bold in their witness for Jesus Christ. They were authentic Christians. They were salt and light, to borrow the metaphors that Jesus left for us in Matthew, the fifth chapter. And the light that was in them was a loving rebuke to the darkness that was in me. And I was drawn to that light like a moth is drawn to light. And the salt that they were didn't quench my thirst. It created it. That's what salt always does. It gave me a thirst for what they had, and they pointed me to the thirst quencher, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. My dad was 40 years old when I became a Christian. I mentioned he was a bartender. He had a lot of problems. He grew up in a very dysfunctional family himself and brought some of that with him into our family. And I just want you to know that my dad came to live with us the last eight years of his life. He was 68 when he came to live with us, my age today. And he died when he was 76. And when I invited him to come and live with us, he said, Doug, will I have to go to church? I said, no, you don't have to go to church unless you want to. So for four years, he never darkened the door of the church. And one day, after that four years, he sat me down one day and he said, Doug, I'd like to become a Christian. So I led my dad to Christ and I baptized him. And I saw, he died four years later at the age of 76. And he only had four years for the sanctification process to take root. But we could see the evidences that things were changing in dad's life. He learned how to resolve a, con- a conflict without screaming. That was a delightful change of events. <laughs> he learned how to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. He learned how to say, I love you. And he learned how to say, Doug, when you go away to preach, I'll be praying for you. It was a blessing those last four years to have a praying father. I've always celebrated this three-generational progression in my own personal journey. Granddad was a gangster, and Dad was a bartender, and Doug is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I celebrate the infinite efficacy of the gospel 
It's life-transforming power in my life, and I'm certain in your lives as, as well. Christians are the recipients of multiplied mercies. We've been given a virtual bath of mercy. We're, we're immersed in it. We're inundated by it. We're flooded to the max with mercy. And our lives have been forever changed by it. I like to think of how God's mercy was shown in these earlier chapters of uh, Romans. I wonder if I can park here just for a moment and do this. You look back at Romans 1 to 11, we won't turn to any, any text. I just want to review it with you very quickly. How does God show his mercy to us in Romans 1 to 11? Because Paul is making his appeal on the ground of these mercies. Number one, in giving his son to die a sin-bearing, wrath-pacifying death for us. It's called propitiation. My sin is imputed to Christ. He takes it in his own body and being all the way up to the cross. He pays its guilt. It's guilt. He, he, he endures the penalty which is due my sin and the sin of the whole world, if I read 1 John 2 and verse 2 correctly. The white heat, the conflagration of God's wrath against sin, Jesus Christ endured in his own body and being on the cross. This is called propitiation. It's one of God's infinitely precious mercies to us. Number two, in setting us right with himself freely by faith through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. That's called justification. And sending his life-giving spirit to live in our hearts, that is called regeneration. All of these you'll find in Romans 1 to 11. You search them out, they're there. And sending his life-giving spirit to live in our hearts, it's re regeneration, the impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That, that is regeneration. The moment I trusted Christ as my Savior, this dead human spirit was impregnated with the life of the divine Holy Spirit, and I was reborn into God's family. And this is critically important and good news for all of us because every one of us is born DOA, dead on arrival. The moment I was born, I was physiologically alive. I had a pulse. As I began to grow up, I became intellectually alive. I have a mind. Emotionally alive, I have feelings. And volitionally alive, I have a will I, with, uh, with, with which I make choices, sometimes which have choices which have eternal consequences. So here we are, physiologically, intellectually, emotionally, volitionally alive, but we're born spiritually dead. That's why we need a second birth. A new birth. That's why we need to be born again. And when that happens, we're regenerated. That's one of God's multiplied mercies to us. Number four, in loosing us from our bondage and slavery to sin. That's redemption. Number five, in removing the enmity between his holy self and our sinful selves. Removing the wall, the barrier, the enmity between us because of his holiness and our unholiness. By the sacrifice of his own divine son. By this act... God restores the peace, the original shalom, which had been forfeited by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is called reconciliation. How else does God show us his mercy? In making us members of his own family. By giving us the status not only of redeemed and regenerated and justified and reconciled sinners, but of actual sons and daughters. This is called adoption. He does it as well in transforming us progressively into the holy likeness of his son through a process of moral ripening and, and spiritual growth. This is called sanctification. And then in ensuring the safety of his people through every struggle on earth until we finally reach heaven. This is called preservation. And at the end, in conforming all of his children finally and ultimately into the glorious beauty and the moral majesty of Jesus Christ. This is called glorification. All of this in Romans 1 to 11, and there's more there than I've said. 
is, is what Paul is referring to when he speaks of the multiplied mercies of God. He's talking about propitiation and justification and regeneration and redemption. He's talking about reconciliation and adoption and sanctification and preservation and glorification. And this is not just religious jargon, smelling of the mold of libraries, reserved only for the dissection of the lecture room. No, these are truths which have touched and transformed every one of our lives. This is what Paul is celebrating here. God's mercies, he says, touch us past, present, and future. He gives us everything we need for salvation from now until forever. And that is the ground of Paul's stunning appeal the engine which drives it all, the multiplied mercies of God. The more we understand of the greatness of God's mercy to us, the greater will be our gratitude to and our love for him. And the deeper will be the level of our commitment to the cause of Christ. Paul calls each one of us to think soberly about all that God has done for us. That's past tense. To think soberly about what he continues yet to do for us. That's present tense. And to think soberly about what he will yet do for us. That's future tense. In view of this mountainous package of multiplied mercies, we are driven to deep gratitude. We are driven to intense love. We are driven to full surrender of all that we are and have to Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton, I think it was, said on one occasion that the most difficult time for the atheist is when he is really, really thankful for something and he has no one to thank. Christians never suffer from this malady. We are really, really thankful for God's multiplied mercies to us. And we know who we ought to thank the triune Godhead and the sacrificial investment they have made in us. This is the moral justification for Christian sacrifice. It's the moral justification for for total commitment. How can Paul ask us to do this on the ground of God's multiplied mercies to us? Secondly, the shape of, of total commitment. I've got to hurry here. It's hard for me to hurry. The shape of total commitment, it's in verses 1 and 2. And I think here Paul is defining what I call the sacrificial personification of total commitment. That is what it looks like when it is actually fleshed out, personified, sacrificially in our personal lives. And, and I've got to make a couple of points here. I, I, I think it, there are a couple of great concepts here that help us to see the shape of total commitment. The first is the presentation of the body. That's verse 1. And the second is the transformation of the mind, and that's verse 2. That's what total commitment looks like, according to Paul, in these two verses. The presentation of the body and the transformation of the mind. And when he talks about the presentation of the body, I think there are a couple of, couple of ideas we need to think about. Number one, this is profoundly radical. And we'll see in a moment that it's also profoundly reasonable. That's what Paul says. This is your reasonable service. Number one, it is profoundly radical. Present your bodies. That is, that is a radical appeal. Particularly when he says, present your body a living sacrifice. Paul employs technical terms. They're borrowed from the ritual presentation of a sacrifice in the Old Testament temple. The word present is a borrowed word from the Old Testament ritual. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word present and the word sacrifice, thusion. These are borrowed terms from the ritual presentation of a sacrifice at the Old Testament temple. 
This is a radical proposal. This is a powerful portrait of what sacrifice looks like. But instead of telling us to bring an offering, Paul challenges us to be one. A living, not a dead, a living sacrifice. When Scripture tells us to offer our bodies to God, it means the whole self, the wholeness of our humanity. Philip Ryken, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in the downtown Philadelphia for a number of years, has a book called City on a Hill, which is his vision of what a church should look like. And it's a great vision, in my opinion. He says in that book about this text, he says, many, many Christian, Christians think of their Christianity as an important part of who they are rather than everything that they are. But God wants more than a part of us. He wants all of us. Every bit of our humanity, the totality of our being, He doesn't want to make use of some of our talents. He wants us to dedicate every one of them to his glory. He doesn't want just a portion of our schedule. He wants us to know that wherever we are, whatever we are doing, we are serving him every moment of our lives. He doesn't want us to give him a piece of what we own. He wants us to recognize that it's all his stuff anyway. And God even wants our bodies. One of the things this means is that Paul will not allow us to spiritualize our Christian commitment we are, not committed, we are not permitted the luxury of fantasizing or theorizing or talking abstractly about the shape of our devotion to Christ. Rather, Paul is demanding that we somatize it, not spiritualize it, but somatize it. What does that mean? Present your somata. That's the Greek word for bodies. Present your somata, your bodies. It means that our body parts, are, our, body parts our tongues and lips and mouths, which can easily be vehicles of moral actions. Our feet and eyes and ears and hands, so can they. The miracle between our temples, the 12 to 15 billion cells we call our brains, all of these no longer serve the ignoble and defiled purpose of wickedness. They serve the noble and distinguished purposes of righteousness. Paul has already said that in Romans 6, verses 13 to 19. And this sacrifice of ourselves is unique. It's living. That's a present participle, which means that every single moment of my life is to be yielded to the sovereign lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's holy, which means set apart and spotless, committed to the elimination of the profane, the integration of the sacred. And it's acceptable or well-pleasing or even refreshing as though it ascends like a sweet-smelling savor or aroma up into the nostrils of God in the throne room of God because it's an act of obedience prompted by love for God. This proposal, this appeal, this moral imperative of Paul is profoundly radical and it's also profoundly reasonable. Paul says this is your reasonable service, by which he means that this kind of radical sacrifice is your logical, it's your rational, it's your reasonable act of worship and service. The word for reasonable is logikos. We get our English word logic from it. The word for service is latreon, and it means sacred service performed as an act of worship to God. It's profoundly reasonable. I mean, what is reasonable is to take the whole of our life, the whole of our being, Everything we are and have, all our actualities at this present moment, all of our possibilities for the future, take all of that and place every bit of it on a sacrificial altar. And I'm I'm borrowing that metaphor from Paul's terminology here. That's the kind of metaphor or picture he's drawing here. Lay all of it on that sacrificial altar and give it all the way up to God. God's multiplied mercies expressed in the gospel 
to inexcusable and undeserving sinners makes this radical proposal profoundly reasonable. That's what Paul is saying. The only sensible way, the only logical, the only reasonable way, the only rational way to respond to the redemptive, sacrificial investment that the triune God has made in us is to offer ourselves to him in the form of sacrificial, redemptive service as an expression of our gratitude to him and our love to him. This is what turns, this is what turns the whole of our life into a liturgy. It turns the whole of our life into an act of worship 24-7. The shape of, the shape of total commitment, a part of it is the presentation of the body, radical, but profoundly reasonable in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what that entails for you and me. Christ came, the Christmas event of incarnation. Christ died, the Good Friday event of crucifixion. Christ arose, the Easter Sunday event of resurrection. That is the gospel. And that was sacrifice on the part of the triune Godhead. In light of that, we give our lives fully into his control. But there's a second side to this, another side to this. First, the presentation of the body. Second, the transformation of the mind. And here, too, there's, there's a significant question with each of these, and I, skip, I think I skipped the first one. The presentation of the body. If I ask the question, what will total commitment cost me? The presentation of the body says it will cost me everything. And there's a question here with, with the transformation of the mind as well. If I ask the question, what is the greatest obstacle to total commitment? If you look at verse 2, in Paul's mind, the answer is worldliness. This is what Paul is dealing with in this verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want to park here just for a moment. I know I'm running out of time, but I don't want to keep you too long here. But I want to park here just for a moment. I want to, say a couple, I want to make a couple of grammatical notations. Can I do that? As I said for the last group, I said for the point oh, 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 0.0001% of you that like grammar, let, let me park here just for a moment. First, the shape of the imperative is very significant. We have a present tense imperative here. Be conformed. It's a present tense imperative. A, a moral command. A moral weight laid upon us. Be conformed. The Greek grammarians, who are a lot better at Greek than I am, the Greek grammarians suggest that when you have a present tense imperative, be conformed, and it's accompanied by a negative particle, which we have here, be not conformed, when you have a present tense imperative accompanied by a negative particle, what it, what it actually means is this. It's describing the cessation of an activity that is already in process. So what is Paul actually saying to the Roman Christians? What he's actually saying is stop being conformed to this world. He's calling for a cessation of an activity that is already in process. This is a powerful indictment of the first century body of Christ in the city of Rome. You'll get a picture of some of his concerns sometime if you read Philippians 1, 14 to 18. And Philippians 2, verses 20 and 21. In those two texts, you get a picture of something that was going wrong in the city of Rome, the city from which he wrote the book of Philippians. And I wonder, what do you think Paul would say to our 21st century body of Christ here on the North American continent? I wonder if he would feel the necessity to say, stop being conformed to this world. The second grammatical point that carries a little weight for me here is, is the word that Paul employs for world 
Stop being conformed to this world. It's a little four-letter word, I-O-N, A-I-O-N, rather than the customary cosmos. James Boyce makes the point that I-O-N means age. Stop being conformed to this age. He says it means this present age in contrast to the age to come, when Christ comes. Stop being conformed to this age. And he says, the little Greek word I own is the exact Greek equivalent of a Latin word, saculum. Saculum is the word, the Latin word from which we get our English word, secular. So what Paul is actually saying here, Paul's moral imperative for God's people is this. Stop being conformed to the patterns and fleeting fashions of this secular age. That's what Paul is saying. Paul insists that there are only two ways of looking at life. We can have the mind of Christ, the biblical worldview, or we can have the mind of the world, the world's worldview. And he contends that these two ways are utterly incompatible. In fact, they are in direct collision with one another. So completely divergent are these two ways that reconciling them is impossible. And caving in to the spirit of the secular age is unthinkable, Paul says. Paul is issuing a very, very profound challenge to those of us who live in our, in our 21st century world. He's calling us to be clearly identifiable Christians rather than those who are barely distinguishable from the world around us. Clearly identifiable, not barely distinguishable. He's calling us to be radical alternatives to the world system, its intellectual patterns of thought, its way of thinking. That's why the solution of the worldliness in this text is the renewing of the mind. He's calling us to be radical alternatives to the world's way of thinking and thus the world's way of behaving. We're to be radical alternatives to the world system and not merely feeble echoes of it. Philip Ryken contends in that same book, and I'm almost done now, that not many Christians are succeeding here. He says the point is that, that what keeps most Christians from sacrificing everything for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel is the constant pressure we're rubbing up against it every day. It's in all the vehicles of power and communication in our society. The constant pressure to think like non-Christians and thus to act like non-Christians and to embrace the world's worldview. It's humanism. It's relativism. It's pragmatism. It's hedonism. It's materialism. His appeal in verse 2 runs counter to that. He's calling us to be counter-cultural Christians. It means that, that we cannot allow the spirit of the secular age, its intellectual patterns of thought, its moral patterns of behavior, to set our agenda, to rule our thoughts, to shape our priorities, our personal lives, our marriages, or our families. We cannot allow the world's worldview to force us into its mold or to squeeze us into its likeness. We are to break out of the world's categories of thinking and we are to allow our minds to be transformed and renewed by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. And these are infinitely powerful, infinitely powerful change agents. And that's why we must learn again the skill of walking in the Spirit and the skill of dwelling in the Word. And when we do, we experience mind renewal, the renewing of our minds. We experience the mind renewal, which only submission to the Spirit and immersion in the Word can produce. Now I want to close with this final point, the focus of total commitment. I'll just take a moment here, a couple of moments. The focus of total commitment, which is the will of God. Everything percolates down to this, the will of God. 
This is the missional intention of total commitment. It's for us to do the will of God. I love the way it's expressed in, in um, Ephesians in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, you don't have to turn there, verses 16 and 17, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, 16 and 17. What is God's will for me in being a part of the redemptive process that's going on on planet Earth? Redeeming the time, releasing time from its evil bondage. Everything in the time-space-matter continuum is subject to the curse. And so we need to redeem time from its evil bondage. And we do that whenever we use our allotted amount of it for redemptive purposes. Every time I do something in the sphere of time whose effect extends out into eternity, I've liberated that moment of time from its evil bondage to the curse. And that's what we're supposed to be doing, redeeming the time when the days are evil and finding out what the will of the Lord is with respect to our own personal part in doing that. Nothing is more important than discerning and doing the will of God, and in some ways nothing is more difficult because we're so in tune with doing our own will. We all battle this. I battle it. We're so natively narcissistic, so natively infatuated with our own selves, so easy for us to ask the question, what's in it for me? It's very difficult to do the will of God. I've always appreciated the initial stanza of the Lord's Prayer in this connection. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the Christian life, if I understand that initial petition or set of petitions in the Lord's Prayer, the Christian life begins with and centers on God's name, not my name. God's kingdom, not my kingdom. And God's will, not my will. It's another way of saying that life is not all about me, not all about Doug. It's all about God, the exaltation of his name, the extension of his kingdom, the execution of his will. It's obedience to God's will that is the distinguishing mark of total commitment. It's the evidence that we have actually engaged in the presentation of the body and the transformation of the mind. Totally committed Christians have a longing to be fully obedient Christians. There's no other way to glorify our great God. There's no other way to rescue our post-Christian perishing world, but to surrender to him completely, obey him fully, serve him sacrificially, and all of it because we love him supremely. There's no legalism in this. Because we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can only imagine what kind of impact the body of Christ would have on planet Earth if every Christian in churches like this great church and all across this land understood and genuinely embraced what it really means to live life by this paradigm, by what Paul is laying out for us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so I close with this. The call to total commitment on the ground of God's infinite mercy, if it's fully embraced and obeyed, will take this shape. Number one, it will lead us inevitably to a radical surrender of all we are and have as an act of reasonable service and worship. That's the presentation of the body. And it will lead us to a radical break with the secular worldview. That's the transformation of the mind. And it will end in a sacrificial commitment to discerning and then doing God's will on planet Earth. This is the kind of Christianity our world desperately needs to see inside the body of Christ. A morally anemic, missionally anemic, 
theologically anemic kind of Christianity will not cut it in our postmodern Darwinian and secular world. We should all pray that we will be a Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of people. So I call you as I call myself to total commitment to the Savior, to the Scriptures, and to the sacrificial spread of the gospel. This is not an easy life, but it's a great life. I often say, if you want a life of easygoing self-indulgence, whatever you do, don't become a Christian. And in particular, don't become a servant of God. But if you want a life that is perfectly suited to the nature God gave you as a creature made in his image and as a sinner reborn into his family, if you want a life that is perfectly suited to that nature, then leave everything else behind and burn all your bridges and come and follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for a glorious text of Scripture. It unpacks for us what it really means to be a Christian. It's impossible for little people like us to get, all, get out of it all that is in it. But I pray that your precious Holy Spirit will speak its truth, not only to my heart, but to all of us in the hearing of this word. For your glory, for the good of the body of Christ, and for the good of the world who needs pungent salt and brilliant light. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.